Hey, podcast listeners. Thanks for joining us for the All Saints Lutheran Sermon Series of Podcasts. We're so delighted that you've landed on this page, and we ask that you contextualize yourself by reading the descriptor. Enjoy, and let us know what you think. Ah, morning, all. Morning. A few years ago, I should never have done this, but a few years ago, I took up the challenge to preach on at least at least once a year on the Older Testament reading. And then I read the text for this week and thought, why? <laughs> why? Because if you read through 1 Kings, especially starting at like chapter, what do you say, Vicar 14 and on, well, okay, the whole thing. Let's just be honest. It pretty much reads like the Game of Thrones, <laughs> which I don't think is appropriate in our context for today, so I will not be discussing many of the stranger aspects of that. Although I will mention that when I was little, probably around eight or nine, my parents showed us some TV show on like the Older Testament, and I remember the creepy, like, priests of Baal and what they did, which was horrible. So if you need to know that, there are Bibles available, and you can read it on your own. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit about some of the pieces in here that I had forgotten since seminary, because that was like 30 years ago. And uh, Rebecca's mind is like a steel trap, and it's so great that she's not here today. <laughs> Although I'm sure she will watch the sermon later and give me feedback. She's actually preaching at East Bethel today, which is her daughter-in-law's church. So I want to talk to you a little bit about King Ahab. King Ahab probably could have been a good guy, but I'm pretty sure he has been filleted of his backbone. Meaning that when he met Jezebel, he was like, anything you want, it's fine. You want an idol to a god of rain and like enriching the soil, the harvest, and and that guy's name is Baal. Yeah, sure, I'll build an altar. I'll build an altar to Baal. What else, what else would you like? Well, I also would like you to build some altars to Asherah. Oh, well, who's Asherah? Oh, well, Asherah is the god of... um like prostitutes and other things. And they have these great symbols that they put all over the altar. And and again, fillet of his backbone, Ahab's like, oh, okay. So you have this pretty much Israel, king of Israel, and then he marries uh, Jezebel. Things go badly after that. <laughs> Where there had only been one God, now there are all sorts of gods, and they have faces, and they have names, and they have purposes. Right? What is the first commandment to God again, folks? You shall have no other God before me. Okay. Um, yeah. Enter in Elijah. He was this mighty prophet, and prophet, prophet, someone who could see ahead and speak for God. Thank you. That was awesome. <laughs> Elijah told King Ahab that there would be no rain for three years. 
That was not the signal for no rain. Clearly, I am not as close to God as Elijah. (laughs) But in the text, we find out that there was not rain for three years. The defining moment comes when Elijah summons the people to Mount Carmel and challenges the prophets of Baal to offer a sacrifice without the use of fire. Now, think of this. 400, 450 maybe priests of Baal standing around an altar that they had built, probably out of stones and stuff, and they're all dancing around the altar, and they're all like going, yeah, come on, Baal, bring it, Baal, bring it, bring it. And they're like beating themselves, and there's blood, and there's, it's, it's just a, it's, you can read it. Sorry, I got excited because I just read it, and it's still fresh. Anyway, um, nothing happened. So Elijah had a similar altar that was built, and he covers it with water. And then he goes, more water. And they cover it with more water. And then what do they say? More water. So they put more water on big basin of water. And then Elijah goes, uh, fire. And fire goes, <laughs> and completely destroys the entire altar. And then all the priests as well. Yay. Way to go, Elijah. <sighs> so transform for the moment. All the people that had seen that, all the people that had been up on Mount Carmel are like, yeah, let's follow that God, because that God makes more sense, and those other gods, maybe not so much. But as it turns out with most of us, (laughs) yay, we're excited, and then we're like, yeah, or not. It was short-lived. The people's faith wavers, and the king's wife Jezebel seeks to have Elijah killed. By the way, she gets uh, ripped apart by dogs like three years later, and it turns out all right for the Israelites in the long run. But that's um, way you have to read further. Focus. Fearing for his life, Elijah flees to the desert, where in a moment that echoes the revelation at Sinai, God sends a shattering wind and earthquake and then fire. But Elijah doesn't encounter God in any of these powerful Phenomena, but rather in the calm that follows when it was sheer silence. Or we might translate that sometimes as that still, small voice. And within that, he finds God. The other piece to note here is how God continually reaches out and tends to Elijah throughout this book. Earlier in 1 Kings 17, God commanded Elijah to go to the to Zarephath. Do you remember this story? Where there's a widow who would feed him. She is down to her very last bite. Hospitality was the most important part of Jewish culture when it came to caring for the neighbor, even if a stranger. So you can imagine her having some meal and some oil and Elijah saying, I'm going to eat with you, and her saying, we're out, we're going to die. And you know what? It doesn't run out. It never runs out. That's the first miracle. Then, later on, the son gets sick. The widow of the son gets sick. He dies, and Elijah brings him back from death to new life. When he was running for his life from Queen Jezebel, the ravens, were sent by God, and they fed him by bringing him meat and bread morning and night. What does that sound like? Does that sound like the wilderness wandering where the quail and the manna showed up? It sure does. 
two quick thoughts here. One, Elijah was ravenous. You see what I did there? Raven, us. <laughs> ravenous. Okay, okay, I thought that would be funnier. <laughs> also, Jesus in Luke chapter 12 actually says, and I quote, consider the ravens. It does not in the text say, consider the birds. I'll give you the, the context here. Consider the raven. They neither sow nor reap. They have no barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than birds? And which one of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your span of life? Love that. Okay, so after Elijah was refreshed, he'd gotten his game back. He was still trying to figure out what to do, where to go. He took a 40-day journey to Mount Horeb. Now, Mount Horeb is also known as Mount Sinai. He was following in Moses' footsteps, and that's where we meet him in the text today. But I thought you needed some back and forward information. He's in the same crevice as Moses was all those years ago. And in the morning, God asks, what are you doing here? Elijah, hello, what are you doing? And then Elijah complains. As one would, God calls him out. The Lord will pass by, great wind, breaking rocks, earthquake, fire, but the Lord is in none of those. Note the repetitions. Three, again, and then sheer silence. God asks again, "Um, Elijah, what are you doing here? And basically, the word for Elijah, he answers in the same way as he did in 19 and 14. Where he's like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> we don't know what to do or what to say when we are exhausted, right? We just don't know. And at this point, he is beyond fatigued. Even though he has gotten bread and water and game and bread, he's tired. And he is at what we would say, the end of his rope. So God looks at him and says, I'm going to give you some people to anoint so that you don't have to go this alone. And that's exactly what happens. God hears Elisha and then gives him a mission to anoint kings and sends him a helper. And the helper's name is Elisha. When we are at our wit's end and we do not know what to do or where to go, hearing other people's stories like Elijah's can remind us that we don't have to go it alone. We're not supposed to. We've been called not only to receive a hand up when we fall, but we're also called to extend our hands to those who have fallen. Those who are depressed, those who are in prison, those who are sick, those who need food, those who simply need a cup of cold water, as we said in our prayer this morning. Consider the ravens. God even cares for the condemned carrion-eating bird. God is an undiscriminating feeder, and God will care for you. Consider the widow. See, last week's sermon, for even more content and context, the feeding of the 5,000, what? Not counting 
women and children, and God will feed us even when we're ravenous. To the gospel, Jesus, having fed thousands, finally catches his breath and goes where? Up to a lonely place up on a hill or a mountain, and he's praying. Just like Moses, just like Elijah, uh, this is reminiscent to us because we're, again, looking forward into the scripture of the transfiguration where all three are up on a mountaintop. But that's not going to happen for a while for us. Do you remember that story? Well, it happened one day that Christ went his way, climbed up a high mountaintop. <laughs> Peter came along, James and John, until the four that came to a stop. Yeah, then something seems strange, right, on that mountain range, because what? Moses and Elijah and Jesus showed up. Why? Because they were awesome prophets. Gave us the Ten Commandments. Showed us to focus on God first. Okay, focus. You heard the story. Jesus catches up to the disciples by walking on the water. Peter jumps in and almost drowns. And he says to Jesus, something that we'll sing in just a moment, Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on. Help me stand. I am weak. I am tired. I am alone. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand. Precious Lord, take me home. Back into the boat. What happens? The wind ceased. Utter silence. The still, small voice of God. Even the wind and the storm obeys Jesus. And in the silence, those in the boat worship Emmanuel, God with skin on, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. If that sounds familiar, it should, because those words are sprinkled throughout the Newer Testament and usually said by people that we don't expect it from. Think of the woman by the well, the Samaritan woman, yes, Surely you are the Son of God. Think of the centurion behind, below the cross of Jesus, looking up at the Messiah, saying, Surely this was the Son of God. Foreign evangelists, the first gospel preachers. Because Jesus is and was and will ever be the Son of God, and we have no reason to worry. Consider the ravens. Do not be afraid. Do not worry. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Take my hand. God took care of Elijah by way of the ravens and a widow. There's still a small voice of God, and Elijah heard and responded. And it's often in our deepest, darkest moments that God's voice whispers to us. This is also true for Thomas A. Dorsey. He is the author of the song, Precious Lord. After his wife, Hetty Harper, an infant son, died in August of 1932. God reminds us to have good courage. And actually, this is true fun fact. There are 365 versions of do not be afraid throughout the Bible. Uh, one for each day of the year. I don't know what we do for leap year. Sing a song. It's fine. <laughs> and we sing that song, and some of you have told me you keep singing this song, 
Don't be afraid. My love is stronger. My love is stronger than your fear. Just repeat that over and over when you're feeling anxious. Because Jesus is reaching out his hand to you day after day after day after day after day. And in the sheer silence, we too can stand alongside the disciples in the boat, along with Thomas A. Dorsey, and say, truly, this is the Son of God. And for this reminder of God's still small voice, can you hear it? We can all say, thanks be to God. Amen.